Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You are listening to the fifth episode of Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we do keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. And our podcasts do include violence and trauma. So listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Caroline. Good morning. Yeah, and uh, today we're going to be talking about a murder in Fresno, California. We've named our episode Malignant Pretender uh, because that is our view of the killer here. So let's begin by telling our story about this crime. It's Easter morning, 1992, on the northern coast of California. And there's a well-to-do, as in millionaire, family and highly regarded Dale and Glee Yule family as parents that includes two grown children. There's Tiffany, 25, who is working on her master's degree. Caroline, you and I talk about this murder a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think we've both decided that the world is uh, worse off not having Tiffany in it. We really like Tiffany, and we hope our our listeners do too. Anyway, the son, Dana, is 23, and he's just got a little ways to go in his bachelor's degree program at Santa Clara University. So Tiffany and her mom, Glee, are driving back to their home in an upscale bedroom community of Fresno, California called Sunnyside. Sunnyside sounds so happy. Nothing bad ever happens. Anyway, <clears throat> Dale Yule piloted his plane back home. He owned an aircraft company and he usually fell, uh, flew himself all over rather than drive. And when Clee and Tiffany arrived home in their, you know, they drove back they were both shot execution style by an intruder who had been lying in wait. <sighs> so later, that same killer would kill Dale Ewell the, the same way, execution style, and he would never know what hit him. As heinous as this crime was, it gets worse, Caroline. The killer was the roommate of Dana Ewell at Santa Clara University. And Dana Ewell ordered the hit with a promise of a 50-50 split of the family fortune worth about $8 million, which today would be about $18 million. So it's real money. And Dana, as the only living family member, would inherit everything. That was the plan. The dead bodies of the family he just annihilated lay undetected for two days. Mm. That's just so, salt in the wound on this story. It's bad. It really is bad. And, um, you know, we're going to find out just uh, what it takes to catch a killer like this. Uh, and the killer, in my mind, is Dana. But for Dana, uh, mm -hmm. the hitman would not have done this. 
Yeah. So this is on this is on Dana. Obviously, the wipeout of a prominent family is going to rock Fresno and beyond in a very chilling way. An entire family, save one lucky son, murdered in their own home? Who is next? And who would want to kill this sweet, unpretentious family? In order to understand why these three good people are dead on the floor of their own home and why the youngest child, Dana, would even think to mastermind a hit, we have to get to know the Ewells a little bit. And many people admired the parents in this family, Dale and Glee Ewell, two people who had lived as kids during what some would argue is the bleakest moment in American history, the Great Depression. And they became millionaires eight times over from hard work and determination. But who would know that from the way they lived? Because their house at 5663 East Park Circle Drive was in an upper middle class neighborhood, a bedroom community of Fresno called Sunnyside. And at the same time, it was an unpretentious brown one story ranch style home. And their friends will tell you that they never flaunted their wealth. But they did spoil their kids, Dana and Tiffany, and they wanted their kids to have everything. And Dale Ewell was known to say, I never want my children to have to slave under a sweltering sun every day. So let's unpack that. Well, to me, that's the quintessential American dream. I think... I think over the past couple of decades it has changed, but wealth in America used to be a very understated, you know, sort of like the people who are out buying Mercedes and things like that. Yeah. Okay. They're rich, but the wealthy of this country were quietly living in blissful communities, donating to charities, creating foundations, sending their kids to public school. Like I, I really do think there's a large swath of wealthy individuals that live this way. And it is beautiful, right? I mean, it's, it's that, I think that privilege we're all striving for where, but these people came out of the depression, which you hear that a lot, you know, where he says, I, I don't want my kids to slave under a sweltering sun every day. I think most parents can relate to that. You know, if you had a hard spot in your growing up, you're going to want to prevent a hard spot or that hard spot for your kids. But if you had a, a, developing experience maybe you want to repeat that for your kids right like some people see the army as that or the first job you know they really encourage their kids to have these life experiences but it sounds like maybe he was almost at that holding back stage where it's like I had a really hard childhood I don't want my kids to have that you guys can have access to anything you need you know right yeah Well, I couldn't agree more. I remember going to a a sleepover one time in the 1960s with some friends, and it was a big party, and we went out in the middle of the night, and we rolled a house in the neighborhood, uh, which means toilet paper all in the trees and everything, and when we came back to that house, uh, the mother was up, and she made us stand there and listen to a lecture of how she grew up in the Depression, and you there was no toilet paper. Mm-hmm. You could not afford toilet paper. Mm-hmm. And people also, if they got access to any, they hoarded it. And it was a valuable commodity. And she really focused on the waste of TPing 
a neighbor's house. Yeah. Not the horror that they're going to wake up to and how <laughs> bad that is morally, but do you know really? how valuable and the fact that you're out wasting this? I really lean into that as far as how the mind develops through trauma. Yeah. And, you know, point. that is where hoarding sometimes comes from. Yep. And a lot of fears. And so I think that Dale, if he's saying that a lot, he... He felt imprisoned, it sounds like. He mm-hmm. felt indentured. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, Dale Ewan knew what was that was like. And in fact, where that came from was he was raised on a farm in Ohio during that depression, instilling in him the value of long, hard working days in the hot summer sun. But he was also a dreamer. And while he was doing all this work and slaving and getting his skin burned, He also was looking up at the sky and he would see some airplanes, not a lot, but some. And he just wanted to be in an airplane. That was his dream. He graduated in college from aeronautics engineering, and he eventually made the family fortune selling airplanes to large scale farmers. So, you know, I like him. Yeah. We got some grit going on there, some brains. And um, meanwhile, Glee was born to a family of means in Chicago. So complete opposite. She was adventurous, though. And when she graduated college in international studies, she joined the CIA as a Spanish interpreter and was stationed in Argentina. Yeah. Glee is like my favorite because that to me is the coolest thing I've ever heard of anyone doing. I mean, it's just cool. (laughs) It is very, very cool. It's very cool. After they became wealthy, she became a philanthropist and a community builder. People said that she really saw her as a Martha Stewart level of uh, entertainer. You know, when you are entrepreneurial or, pardon me, philanthropic and you are also a community builder, you kind of know how to throw some lavish parties with mm-hmm. some well-heeled people, and you got to do it a lot to yeah. uh, raise that money. Um, and she was she was at the Martha Stewart level. I, that's all I've got to say about that. And you know, Martha Stewart is still going strong at eighty something. Um, I love her. I hate her. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> talking about Martha Stewart, not Glee. Uh, Glee and Dale met at a party in 1961, and um, over time, he developed this uh, company called Western Piper, and he also owned working farmland. So he was uh, known as a ruthless businessman. I don't know what that means. I don't think there are dead bodies in the wake of him, but probably some angry people. Someone once asked him what he did for fun. You know, they never saw him having fun. What do you do for fun? And he says, oh, I go home and I look at my bank accounts. Now, that could have been none of your business code. That's true. Good point. Uh, Or it could have been what he actually does. I don't know. Well, that's a good point because in business speak, you would do a little bit of... um chest puffing, right? If a, yes. if a business, another colleague or maybe 
a non-rival person, but a person who's not your bestie or not your friend, not in your family, is talking to you about something you don't want to talk about, you do sometimes take a little biting thing, you know, maybe self-deprecating, deprecating, but like, yeah, because I'd hate to think of it. He doesn't strike me as someone who would stare at bank accounts, given all the other factors. So maybe he did say that to say, just leave me alone. We're not in the same sphere. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, I'll never know what was more important to Dale. Was it the money that he was accumulating or was it the the process of making that money mm. through business acumen? Yeah. And if I have to choose one or the other, I'm going to say the joy of building something from nothing and um, and having the money then to build another something out of nothing yeah. or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think he would have farmland on his portfolio if he didn't enjoy visiting that farmland, right. looking out for it, nurturing it. So I'm going to, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say he wasn't really a money lover, uh, the way he's depicting in this comment. Yeah. But anyway, apparently, um, you know, he said it. And so people kind of thought he was very, very serious about making money. And uh, of course, you know, you do make a lot of money if you work hard mm -hmm. in this country. Usually you make, you, you make more money than if you don't work hard. Right. I'll put it that way. Anyway. So, um, let me mention something about our favorite character here, which is Tiffany. When Tiffany was just a baby, she was in a very bad car accident and, um, she'd been um, severely injured in her head. She had a metal skull plate in her head since she was a uh, child, a baby. And she had it in her head the day she died. And for this reason, Glee especially always drove with an abundance of caution. And Dale was uh, uh, safety conscious too. He did not like to travel with his family altogether in his airplane because he had a fear of the entire family perishing together. Oh, my God, Caroline. Well, I can relate to that, but in an opposing way, because I find that interesting because to me, how I've always been, and maybe this is morbid and weird, but if anything is going to happen, I want only like, let us all go together. You know what I mean? Kind of a thing. Like, yeah. if there must be a tragic accident. Let us not be separated. And, you know, we die over here and you don't. I just, I don't know. Now that I'm saying it out loud, it does feel maybe like I'm the weirdo, but no, you're I not just, weird. It kind of is like just what you, said, what you though, feel I, in your heart. You don't want to. You don't want to be separated from your family. Well, yeah, I don't want. I don't want someone left behind to suffer, and I don't want others to go on without someone. You know what I mean? It's weird. I do. I don't know anything about anything. I think a lot of our listeners are going to uh, relate to that, and I think some of our listeners are going to relate to Dale here, who, you know. Uh, you know, he's happy to die for his art, but he's right. not going to take his family with him. Right. So anyway, uh, let's talk about Dana, the awful one who pulled off this family annihilation. He was a handful as a child because he made up lies and tall tales that got bigger and bigger and more alarming as he grew up. Um, but he never got out of that habit. And both of his parents were very distraught about it. 
But when Dana graduated from high school and his um, parents gave him a BMW that he totaled immediately, his father bought him a brand new BMW on the condition that he never admit to anyone that he had wrecked the car. It was a family secret. Oh, that's a misstep. That's a misstep. <laughs> I see that a lot. I saw that a lot in high school. I knew a lot of kids who got a couple cars because they totaled the first car. That's a very big misstep. You total yeah. a car, you don't get to drive again for another, pick an interval, six months, one year, but pick an interval because they just How start. about ever? <laughs> They just started driving, and that was the result. So, yeah, this is a bit of a tell, perhaps, uh, or I could be reading too much into it. But, you know, he's a handful. We're very distraught about it. He lies and tells tales. Here's a secret we need you to keep, son. Boom, nailed it. Yeah, that's a problem. So, who's perfect among us? Certainly not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, listen. If you want to know all the missteps that I made as a parent, just go ask Andy because he will tell me about the things that I did. And um, and yet he loves me and I love him and he's maybe forgiven me. And I accept that even though I don't remember it that way, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. So, I mean, you know, I think every family yeah. has that issue of one generation growing up the next. And as a child, how things might be done could have been done better in retrospect. So I'm not, I'm not beating up on the parents here. I'm just saying that Dana was a liar and he made up tall tales, which tells me he lied when there was no reason to lie. He enjoyed lying. Yeah. And that can be a creative outlet. It can lead to a Nobel prize in writing. Right. Um, but as we know, it did not lead that way for Dana. And um, and there's something going on here about some secrets are okay and some are not. And he did not have a barometer. Right. This this dude, Dana, you well, did not have He already, like you said, had a tendency to want to keep most things secret or to want to create secrets out of nothing. You're right, yeah. though. I mean, it wasn't something that ever got addressed because that's really common. And I just want to say it is really common for kids in the driving age to, you know, and for parents to want to avoid the embarrassment of the other. You know what I mean? But yeah, if you know your kid has an an exceptional tendency to lie, it would be very bad to ask them then to lie or to keep a secret in mm-hmm. another context. That's Mm-mm, it's not going to work. They're just going to add that to the mix of, see, this is a great coping strategy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think it's a little, uh, as I said, it's a tale. So anyway, um, let's get back to the uh, family annihilation here and Dana and his hitman and how they got caught because they did get caught. And this is my favorite part. So two days after the murder, April 22nd, 1992, the Yule's housekeeper of 10 years arrived with two of her crew to the Yule home, and they noticed that a neighbor was sort of lurking around outside, hovering around outside, not lurking. Rose, the, the uh, housekeeper, knocked on the door and eventually used her key to gain an interest, an entrance. And the neighbor said that Dana Yule 
had just called him from his school because he was worried he hadn't turn, uh, heard from his parents and they weren't returning his phone calls. So within minutes, Rose and the neighbor and the rest of Rose's crew found a ransacked house. And Rose is like, this, this is not right. This is not how they keep their house. And uh, she knew something was wrong. So she looked a little further, saw a dead body, and everybody screamed and ran out of the house, and uh, including the neighbor. And he went over and uh, called the Fresno County Sheriff's Office immediately, went over to his house and did that. So, oh, my God, we have people finding this uh, ransacked house, a dead body. It had to have been smelling, too, Caroline. Yeah. I'm sorry. Two oh, days. for sure. In the heat. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's that hot in April, yeah. but still. <laughs> I just, you know, death is death. Yeah. A lead detective was summoned by the name of John Sousa, who you are going to come to love, as I did, I think. And, uh, you know, he was the one who was going to have to find out why. This mother and daughter and father were murdered. You know, you don't have to have a why to convict somebody, but you need a why if you're an investigator because that's going to lead to the predator, the the uh, criminal, the killer, whatever you're dealing with. So anyway, he walked all around the bodies. What are they trying to tell him? That's the kind of guy he was. He was a listener to dead bodies, and he had the gift of being able to hear by his eyes, what he could see and ascertain. He determined that Tiffany was shot first, then Glee, and then Dale. He determined that whoever did this had tried to make it look like a robbery, but he told his boss, hey, man, robbers know how to rob, Uh, okay? This guy doesn't know squat about robbing a house. Drawers were pulled out from the top to the bottom. You don't do that, I guess, because if you pull the drawer out from the top to the bottom, by the time you get to the third or fourth drawer, the whole dresser is going to fall over on you because of the weight. So usually robbers go from the bottom up and, you know, a lot of other things. He said, "This, this, this is a staged crime scene. This is a hit on these people. And also robbers upon entering a house and being erupted, interrupted by two women would have just fled. I mean, remember, Glee and Tiffany were driving home and they got there first and they went into the house one at a time as they picked up their stuff from the car and so forth. So first came Glee and I mean, first came uh, Tiffany. She got uh, hit from behind and then next came Glee. She got hit from behind. So anyway, uh, what robber, in other words, is going to kill two women and then lie in wait for Dale? Because by then he knew that Dale had come later in the plane. So anyway, somebody has targeted this entire family and they then staged the scene. And that sort of, to him, also ruled out a hitman hitman, like a real hitman. Yeah. mafia type hitman um or murder for hire gun because they're not going to stage the scene right. they're going to pop 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 goodbye see you later they're out of there and um so anyway detectives uh detectives also talked to a guy named John Zant who you're going to hear more about he was a retired FBA uh agent he was the father of a woman named Monica Zant 
And she's important to this story because Monica and Dale were getting serious about uh, dating exclusively and maybe thinking about getting married. And the parents of both of them were meeting at the Ewell's Beach House that Easter weekend just before uh, the murder. They were just getting acquainted with each other, these families. So they're very kind of proper uh, Victorian habits here. But okay, you're going to go meet the parents. Good idea, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I I do... Uh, this is always going to be a remarkable sort of like unexplored element of this case. I don't think it's necessary to explore it, but this is an FBI agent. <laughs> so I just, yeah. you know, I find it a, an important element here. But that's it. Yeah, where that and, trail and, is. And, uh, <laughs> yeah you're right. You're right. Um John Zent, we have Caroline has got an eye on you. I mean, Anyways, just, every time I hear the story, I think, what what is going on here? <laughs> well, John Zent told the told the uh, you know Sousa that you know nothing nothing about the weekend could was a, a foretelling of the bloodbath to come. And everybody was relaxed. They're playing tennis, of course, and then Dale flew home. And Dana and Monica went to the Zen's home that Easter uh, Sunday. And, you know, meanwhile, of course, we know that Glee and Tiffany drove home. So in other words, uh, Monica and Dana are going to stay behind at the Zen's home, which is Easter. And then the next day they were going to go back to school together. So because they went to school together. So he, uh, Zent, got a call from Dana on Tuesday morning, so two days, uh, wait, and said he had just found out his family was killed in their home, and Zent picked him up at the Santa Clara airport and flew him home to Fresno. So Dana is now flying home, and when authorities asked John about Dana's reaction to his parents' sister's murder, oh, he was destroyed. He was so upset. He's in deep shock. Also, he's a very careful and meticulous person. Hmm. So I read that as sort of like icy, is being, uh, might be misinterpreted by Zent the FBI agent. Well, and maybe, um, maybe that's my real issue with constantly being obsessed with this detail. It's just that I, I've developed an expectation around, oh, the FBI know everything that's happening all the time. No, they don't. Yeah. They're still human beings. And on Easter, he's off. He's off work. He's, you know, his daughter's, he's looking at this guy from a different angle anyway. This is guys yeah. trying to date my daughter. They're in college. It also could speak to how cold and callous Dana is, how totally unassuming and unfeeling he is, even if he's got this plan in place, ready to roll it out. You know, he's just blank because there's nothing there to give. When I see D Dana Ewell in my thoughts and dreams, I see him wearing a mask. He has no facial expression. Mm -hmm. He's very icy. Yeah. And... um that's because during doing research, you get to see a lot of pictures and he just has a face like a mask. He is handsome in a scary way to me because I know what he did. Right. So I don't know who's interpreting what, but anyway, that's what's going on. And uh, they think Dana's in shock. I don't think so. I think he's got a plastic face. But anyway, mm -hmm. in Seuss's first interview with him, Dana Yule's demeanor was tight polished and blank 
When Sousa and Sousa's partner had Dana with him in the murder scene, trying to figure out what was missing and the layout and so forth and so on, Dana was weird, according to Sousa. Now, being somebody who kind of likes weird, I take that as, that might not be the best word, Sousa. You mean scary? But anyway, (laughs) he said he was weird because his biggest concern seemed to be getting an itemized receipt for everything the murder investigators were taking, bagging up, cutting up, and so on. So when Dana entered the family home, he didn't seem to react at all to the chalked in body outlines. Oh my God. Mm. Oh my God. In, in uh, crime scene investigation books that I read and so forth and so on, the people who come in and do the chalk outline, they're called um, chalk fairies. I do know that. So anyway. That's I don't a, even know if they do the chalk thing anymore. A little bit morbid. They probably laser digital. Well, they might now. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there was massive blood in this house, Caroline, and he's just walking in asking for receipts. You took a Kleenex box, a Kleenex, you know. That I, I need a receipt for it's, that. It's gross because, but it also, I want, you know, just in an inserting of benefit of the doubt, Grief is weird. And sometimes people do get weird, like weddings and deaths, weddings and funerals. Like people get weird. They just get weird. It's an existential moment, maybe. I don't know. But to ask for receipts is gross because you should know that they're investigating. And part of an investigation means cataloging in, you know, pieces of evidence and then having what's called the chain of custody with those pieces. So if you're looking for a paper trail, they are going to have a million one pieces of receipt for you, sir, at the end of the investigation. Why are you so concerned with it up front? That's a big, why are you giving them this big neon sign pointing to you? And they, (laughs) you know what I love about narcissistic killers, Caroline? I love it that they have no insight into the effect that they have on other people. And that includes investigators. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank goodness, because otherwise they wouldn't get caught. It's the ones who aren't like that are the scariest, you know? And let me clarify, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know if Dana Ewell is a narcissist, but I certainly can detect narcissistic um, behaviors. Um, And one of them is lack of insight uh, into the effect that one is having on other people. (laughs) So anyway... There's a lot we could talk about in terms of how many suspected possible killers there were that would come in and kill this family. And while Sousa didn't necessarily be- didn't necessarily believe that any of these people were real uh suspects because he already had a hinky feeling about Dana Yule. I just want to kind of run down the efforts that he went through to eliminate these people. So we had the mafia hit idea, and um, that got ruled out. And there was also drug cartel people because the fact that there were some customers that Dana, pardon me, Dale Ewell had in Mexico. So he would uh, sometimes fly to and from Mexico. And some people thought he must be running drugs. No, he was selling airplanes and also service of those airplanes. So he had to go run those down. 
And then uh, Bob Purcell uh, was, uh, you know, he started his business, he being Dale Yule, with a guy named, um, with another guy. It was not Bob Purcell. Bob Purcell was another um, suspect. But let me talk about the man who uh, started the airline, this airline business with, or airplane business with uh, Dale. He went to prison for some reason. And while he was in prison, uh, Dale took the business and put it in his own name. And so they wondered, you know, maybe it's him that killed uh, that killed Dale. But no, uh, for some reason, he was either dead or in jail still or whatever. Bob Purcell. Let's talk about Bob Purcell. He was um, the second in command. And now he would be president of uh, Western Piper. And he was running around always trying to sue somebody, said Dana. You need to look at him. He lied to my father all the time. Uh, Purcell was known as a loose cannon on deck. Uh, he would kill to take over this business. So he had to be cleared. But he was with his family and multiple family members on Easter Sunday. So then there's Jack Whitman, the head of mechanic. Uh, my father called him a hothead, said Dana. Uh, Dale's employees confirmed that they were afraid of Jack's temper at times. But Jack Whitman was also cleared. He had an ironclad alibi. What about Glee's time with the CIA? She was with the CIA. They had to run that down. Uh, going to Argentina, I suppose, to find out, okay, who killed the Yules, and finding out she she was... She just worked with, she was an interpreter. Okay. She didn't know anything classified. No and she really mission. wasn't there that long. I mean, you know, she did marry and have a family. She wasn't working for the uh, CIA. So there were some people at other airlines who were very angry at Dale for charges that he made. That, you know, he maybe was the sole person who could service a particular airplane and they didn't like what he charged too bad. Uh, but they had to be ruled out because they were angry and there were lawsuits. There were some lawsuits. Uh, every business that is highly successful is going to have lawsuits. I was just thinking that, it, that seems very common with entrepreneurs and successful businesses. There's going to be some of that. Right. Um, deep pockets. Yeah. Deep pockets. Insurance. Yep. You know. Um, all kinds of stuff. Okay, so while they're checking out all of these things, Sousa's also getting some insights into this family. Uh, you know, you've got to do victimology, where if you don't know who your victim is, yeah. how are you going to find out uh, leads, which obviously they had a lot about Dale and his business, and even... Uh, Glee and her um, Argentina excursion into the CIA. But, uh, you know, Sousa was just wanting to know more about this family, family dynamics. So most people saw them as highly respected and admired. Tiffany was seen as smart, painfully shy, a sweet, sweet kid, and a very dear person. Yes, we love you, Tiffany. 
I think I'm thinking about her a lot. I think about her a lot. I do too. The only thing that happened to her that was bad was this accident. And it turns out the fact that she had Danny Yule for a brother. But anyway, she was an innocent person. And people loved her. Glee was a nonstop worker. I mean, nonstop. She was a tireless worker for charities and community groups. She sat on the board that selects judges. Uh, so there was that little thing that had to, was there a disgruntled failure of a judge appointment person or persons that they needed to look into? Um, and the uh, Dale Yule was known in his community as a gentle giant. That's kind of sweet. I mean, that doesn't, that's like a, not like a money counter. That's like, you know, just somebody who is powerful, right? but also sweet. Mm-hmm. I just love it. A gentle giant. And Dana Yule was known as Mr. Wall Street. He even told Detective Sousa that he had pictures on the walls of his bedroom of Wall Street. Uh, he probably showed it to him, leading them around the house. Uh, that's my interest, Dana said proudly. And he wore Armani suits and drove nice cars. So this is what people were saying about Dana. Uh, that's creepy. Well, it's interesting because his family was never like that. So this is something he acquired independently in his life. Yeah. With yes. his family. This Absolutely. desire to expose and what a, just display the wealth and display... To an extent that's even beyond what's real, right? I mean, that's Dana's thing is he's like, lavish. This is what I love. Like, whether it's real yeah. or not. Dana, you know, and his parents, you know, I know that they did their best and they worked hard to be good parents and yeah. providers. Dale, Dana is wearing Armani suits and he's driving nice cars. Who do we think is paying for all of that? Yeah. So there is a bit of a dichotomy there. They're supporting him in the way in which he wants to live and his image. Yeah. Um, that's good. But then we've also got that thing about tall tales and, and not being able to be honest or sometimes choosing dishonesty as a fun thing rather than uh, a mortal sin. Right. So I, you know, I don't, anyway, just saying that it was working for Dana. It was working for him to be a part of this family and to know that his parents were going to support him, even if it didn't fit with the way they lived. Yeah. Well, and we don't know what those conversations were like when he went out and bought the Armani suit and when he went out and purchased the nice car. Like, were his parents upset with him secretively? We wouldn't know because they asked already to lie about the car, right? So there was some stuff they weren't going to project out into the world about their family dynamics that they maybe were embarrassed about and trying to change or upset about or disappointed by. And they were working towards shifting that into a place they could be more comfortable with. But there is a part of this that we may not know. Maybe they were actively telling Dana, knock it off. Like, you don't have anything to do this with. You have to first go build your business. Then you do the Armani suits thing, you know? 
who knows? We don't really know. No, we don't. There, Sousa had a partner named Curtis, and uh, they were both keeping one eye on Dana and what he was up to because he was the only living member of the Dale Ewell family, mm-hmm. Dale and Glee Ewell family, and Tiffany. He was the only survivor. And so it was possible that he was a family annihilator. They knew that. So they were keeping one eye, both of them. So there were two eyes on him. (laughs) (laughs) Between the four. (laughs) Between the two of them. That's good. Between the four eyes, there were two eyes. Uh, Anyway, they had plenty to gaze upon, Caroline. Uh, For starters, there was this continuous request by Dana that he be advised in writing of every article taken from the now his residence on East Park Circle Drive. He ever once asked them if they had caught the killer of his family, not one time. Wow, that to me is the most telling piece. Okay, that's the, all I would be obsessed about. What's your new evidence? What else do you have today? Who did you talk to today? What did they say? They're lying. You know, I mean, I would be actively in there to the extent that the investigators would be like, you're you're making it hard for us to investigate. Like, I just don't, why would you not be totally interested in what happened in my house? What happened to my parents? What happened to my sister? Absolutely. To, you know, to any true crime follower or, you know, appreciative observer or um, hobbyist, whatever the word is, people who follow true crime, they know the first thing you do if someone in your family has been victimized, a loved one, you make it your mission to be the squeaky wheel oh, yeah. with the investigators. Oh, yeah. You never let up. That is normal human reaction. So when an investigator, a murder detective, runs into a sole survivor of a wealthy family, and they see this extremely aberrant behavior of not asking even one time, mm-hmm. have you caught the killer of my family? I mean. Or worse, the only questions you do ask are, can I have an itemized list of the things you took from my house today? <laughs> like, and their value. The emphasis on the word my. Right. Me, right. me, me, my, my, my. So somebody who's self, so self-absorbed that they might be a narcissistic behavior person. I don't want to diagnose anybody, but... They're very cold, to say the least. With, uh, yeah, <laughs> just cold. He's got a face like a mask because there's nothing there. Anyway, powerful uh, potential suspects had all, you know, washed out. So... Susan Curtis now had four eyes on (laughs) Dana, and they traveled to Santa Clara campus to find out more about Dana. His friends confirmed that he was very focused on becoming a millionaire, and that's all he ever talked about, and that he followed the Billionaire's Boys Club leader, Joseph Hunt, and um, that he looked up to him, which is really kind of strange, Caroline, because Joseph Hunt is in prison and was in prison at that time of this murder because he had run a Ponzi scheme that included two counts of murder for people who realized there was a Ponzi scheme. So Dale Yule could overlook that he was a murderer because the most important thing was 
um, the rate at which his idol had become a millionaire. That's all he cared about. Joseph Hunt is my idol. He even was writing to Hunt in prison until Hunt stopped writing him back because he discovered that Dana was not a woman. Ha ha. That makes me happy <laughs> for both me of too. those people. <laughs> um, I mean, Dana was probably saying things like, I love you with all of my heart. And, I know. And, you know, and then this Joseph you know, guy's uh, like, oh, I got so many. Joseph Hunt off. is like, well, send me your picture, <laughs> you know. Sorry. God. You both got exactly what you deserved in that interaction. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, anyway, an instructor in business ethics had given Dana an F in his class because he caught Dana committing plagiarism on his assignment. Okay, that's rich. In the ethics class? Jeez Louise. Yeah. Did you rob a bank in police academy? I mean, come on. Like, <laughs> I know. I know. There's a book that I read about this case called Catch Me If You, if you Can. It's really good. And um, I recommend it to anyone who's interested in reading more about this case. Uh, what Susan and Curtis found out is that Dana, when he got that F, he uh, wrote a long multi-page letter to the professor. And Susan got a hold of that uh, letter and talked to the professor. And uh, the, the professor found it so disturbing that he showed it to uh, some of the psychology professors at the university and was told that you need to be frightened of this person. This person is very dangerous. The letter was about how Dana, Dana, dear professor, I am perfect and successful. And I made a mistake in your class and you caught me. Uh, thank you. Because I am going to continue and strive to be even more perfect and successful. And uh, I'll never be caught again. I am totally paraphrasing. This was several pages. You can, I have read the letter. You can read the letter at, in Catch Me If You Can. It may even be on the internet, but I read it in the, uh, so um, he, he was going to be perfect from here on out. So this striving for perfectionism and getting caught in a big lie and getting accountability for it. Yeah. That probably caused so... Dana to write this letter that other people saw as threatening. I you know, I find that really interesting because it's like you it's it's like he was trying to present the mask like you're saying in this letter he's pushing the mask, he's like doubling down. No, no. This fakey mask, this is real. You're right. Like, this is how I'm going to be. Like, it just screams like so fake that it's chilling and scary. It's like being trapped in a room with the murderer and they're like, no, no, it's not me. I promise. And and you just know that it is. And I, so I, I get chills when I think about this letter and this class and this poor professor and just the idea of cheating. Yeah. Cheating. Dana's going to cheat for the rest of his life. It's the getting caught he's real upset about and finds to be the imperfection in this scenario. It's not him. It's the Absolutely. And, you know, maybe this is a stretch and I shouldn't say it, but it's on my mind right now that we're recording in a time where five people have died pursuing a, um, you know, a submersible 
trip to the um, Titanic. And there's a lot of talk around the creator of this particular submersible that he believed with all of his might, and in fact, he was on the trip and got killed as well, that there would be no cracks in his submersible. Mm -hmm. He already had it figured out that it was perfect, no cracks. Right. And knowing that if you are in a submersible at two and a half miles under the ocean or even one mile under the ocean, that pressure is so great. If you have one crack in your, even if it's not, you can't see it with the naked eye, one tiny little pinprick of a crack can cause an implosion under that kind of pressure. To me, Dana Yule is that vessel. Something, there's this vessel is perfect, Mm -hmm. like what you're saying. I call it a mask. It's a vessel. It's him. And you caught me with a crack in my vessel. And I thank you. And that will never happen to me again. Everything I do from this point forward will be perfect. So he was totally blind to the fact that I'm human. Therefore, I'm very imperfect. Right. Right. Well, and to learn from the mistake, right? The I'm totally flawed. Right. Well, shame. Well, this is why we have these things. Shame, embarrassment, fear, uh, disgust. Skin knees. I mean, this is why we have these emotions because they're meant to train. You know, this is us. This is sort of the way that it works. You recognize the feeling. You say, what's off in this situation? What do I want to change to make it right again in line with my yeah. values, my morals, my... Uh, character, my all the things that I've decided right. are, you know, this line and no further for me. And Dana didn't have any lines. He's just a goals guy, millionaire or bust. And all the rest of it is just whatever I want to say about it. Right. And I'm I'm going to wear, if, if I have to get dressed, because I'm perfect specimen. Right. If I have to get dressed, I'll wear an Armani suit, yeah. which is an unattainable to almost everyone. Right. So after a week on campus, these detectives had a portrait of Dana, and here was their list. Selfish, self-centered, pompous, driven, focused utterly on being a millionaire. That is what everyone thought of him, because they were asking other people. So selfish, self-centered, pompous, driven, focused utterly on being a millionaire. But there was this one weird thing. His closest friend seemed to be his roommate, a guy named Joel Redisvich, who, while Dana was dapper and he dated a lot of girls, Joel was as uh, in love with video games and guns and drugs. And people were saying, like, you know, would they, we think that Radisvich hangs out with Dana because, uh, uh, you know, Dana's going to get the best looking girl, but he'll get the second best looking girl, things like that. Mm. These are college kids, and this is how they talk, and this is how they figure things out, generally, not always. And they, they, um, you know, th- but people were like perplexed. What, what, what yeah. does Radisvich see in Dana? What does Dana see in Radisvich? Yeah, that's what I would think. So um, then the detectives found out something that changed the course of the investigation. Dana had been written up in a school newspaper as a self-made millionaire 
already. Already, already a millionaire. Because he had started, according to the article, he had started selling planes as a kid and he was now a tycoon while he was earning his business degree. Huh. So Dana Ewell was not only troubled, but now he had appropriated his father's success story. It's one of his tall tales, and it got in the paper. The school newspaper article had morphed into regional news, Caroline. Mm. With Dana Ewell owning his own aircraft company, a multimillionaire college student. There was an article in the paper, and now it's a regional article, and there are pictures of of Dana in his Armani suit in front of one of his airplanes. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. (laughs) Rumors among people in campus had it that the father found out and was angry and that he might be planning to change his will because Dana's lies and tall tales had gone way too far this time. Yeah. No, I agree. You know, you wrecked your BMW. He bought you a new one and said, do not tell a soul. So what do you think he's going to do when you tell the regional world around you who all know his dad's story too? Everyone saw that you appropriated the story. That They didn't see this fictitious story. They saw you selling a story they knew belonged to your dad. That's, I mean, it's the community, right? Absolutely. That's more embarrassing. Absolutely. And probably nobody's going to say anything about it. Now, go, there go, every time we record, Fiona starts barking when we get to the juicy, yeah. you know, part of the center of our uh, cookie here. So hold on. I'm going to... Well, I was going to pause us and go shut her up, but I'll just leave it in. Anyway, because we are getting to the juicy chocolate center of this Tootsie Pop. So this uh, regional article, Caroline, when do you think it came out? Right before the killing of his family. Oh, my gosh. Well, in that. So before the father could change the will, I bet. Well, that's, yeah, I was just going to say the most important bit of that rumor is the will part, because we know that Dana doesn't care about how he's perceived by others. That's not of interest to him. He doesn't care about being caught in a lie. He'll just write another weird letter. But his dad is going to cut him off, and he's going to lose his access to how he's been able to create this fake story. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. I... I'm tempted to go into a lot of detail about some other ballistics related stuff related to this case. But for now, what I want to say is that before Sousa and Curtis left that campus, they decided to go maybe knock on the door of Dana Yule. And they went and knocked on the door of Dana Yule's dorm. And who came to the door but Joel Radisvich? And what was the first thing out of his mouth when he saw two murder detectives at the door? He said, are you here to arrest me? Oh, my gosh. That's a weird thing to say to police. All the time. All the time. Every time. (laughs) Yep. He was probably high as a kite because Joel Radisvich is a drug user. Uh, video games is all he does and hang out with this 
uh, pretend rich guy uh, named Dana, who's pretending to be his dad, Dale. So let's let's go into Dale just a little bit uh, before we get into how these guys were caught. Uh, Dale Yule had three brothers, Dan, Ben, and Richard. The murder of their brother Dale left them shattered, as you might imagine. Who would want to kill an entire family, minus Dana, of course. He was the lucky one. Then something happened to interrupt their grief, or widen it, really. The brothers had a growing suspicion that their nephew Dana killed his family. The suspicion started when Dana's behavior at the funeral home with the brothers when Dana picked out a cheap casket for his sister, saying it was good enough for her. Oh. They were just horrified. Ooh is right. Ooh. Dana then refused the funeral home suggestion that he purchase an ornament for his father's casket. It cost $35, Caroline. And the ornament was, you know, something that most people put on this particular casket for some reason. Why spend that money on something I can't see, said Dana. Oh, that's so, gross. That's a gross. He said the whole th- the whole thing is just, you know, he's just obviously um, sick. But anyway, the brothers were also murder- mortified by Dana's behavior at the funeral in which Dana appeared to all observers to be totally nonplussed. He was cold, indifferent, and, uh, you know, maybe he was closed down over the loss of his family, but uh, no, Dana uh, was there, and Susa had been there, too, at the funeral of the Yules, and Dana was not sad. He was not shook up. He was not even pretending to be grieving. What he was doing is when people came up to him to extend condolences, Dana Yule made note of their jewelry and commented to the consoler that he admired what he saw. That's, I, I just, I don't even think you have to attend a funeral to know. It's not the topic of conversation at a funeral. There no. are a couple things that are definitely going to be off limits at a funeral. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, you know, what a suck up. Superficial materialistic things are definitely off off the table. He he just he just again no insight into yeah. how, how how his effect on other people. I, uh, five weeks after the murder, so this would be what May nineteen ninety two. After the murders, all three brothers came to see Susa. They felt terrible and awful. They were in disbelief, uh, not just about the murder of their brother and his wife and his daughter, who they dearly loved. We thought Dana was just closed, said Dan. But then Dana had started pestering and pressuring Ben, who's an attorney, to read the will already every day. Read the will. Have we, are, when are we going to read the will? We need to read the will. So they all gathered for a reading of the will. And picture this, Caroline, the brothers and Dana are at the table where the family simultaneously all heard the revelation that Dana would receive a fortune down the road. All the Huell family assets were to be placed in trust to be paid to Dana in increments when he turned 30. And then the final payment at 35. And Dana screamed and pounded his fist into the table in a fit of rage. How could my father do this to me? Yeah, whoa, no no idea of self-awareness there whatsoever. That's crazy. I would kill for five years of payments out of nowhere. Are you kidding me? I mean, I guess Dana did kill, and he's still dissatisfied with that outcome. But I, I just, oh my gosh, like, 
why would I mean the rage should come from your family is gone. You're alone in the world now. But this guy's just pissed that he has to wait a little longer for money. Like that's so gross to me. Also very tough. You know, I just want to go back and remember that everybody said that Glee and Dale were wonderful parents to Tiffany and uh, Dana, and that they did everything. The Ro- Rose, the uh, how ha- Rose Avita, the housekeeper, she would tell the investigators and anybody who would listen. You know, a lot of rich people don't want to be with their children. These Dana, Dale, and and Glee, they did so many things with their children. Yeah. They. They went on family outings. They had family adventures. They had family vacations. Everything was about their children. It seems as though they really wanted a perfect family. But, I mean, Caroline, there are some serious cracks in this guy named Dana. Yeah. And he's and, got. And, and I'm with you. I don't know that there's anything different that parents could have done because I do believe the parents behind closed doors were doing what they thought was the right thing to do, what they thought was the next best step, as all parents do. Um, so we can't. That's not the route here, but it's just, it's, it, it, I'm feeling some frustration come up about how anti-empathetic Dana is, how discompassionate this person is. He's got nothing. You're right. There's nothing there. He just. Right. Nothing. He's got, um, you know, lack of compassion, a lack of insight. Uh, he's got, um, sees people as objects. How can I use them? How can I maneuver? Around this person, the professor, this person, the investigator, this person, my father, these people, the newspapers, just he's always got a mask and he doesn't feel a thing except love for money and criminal millionaires who are in prison for murder as his hero. I mean, it's very frightening. Yeah. Dana did wind up with some money because there was life insurance money that didn't have anything to do with the estate. There was also Glee, I mean, Tiffany had saved a lot of her money and she had invested it. And so he could live off of that money. And we'll get into some other money stuff in a little bit. But um, Dana had gone back to college and Susa had poked around there, as I said, and Curtis. And uh, one of the things that they found out on a second visit was that Joel Radisvich's friends said that Joel had ordered books on how to make a silencer. Oh. And that was a big break in the case. But it still wasn't enough to link Dana to Joel enough to show that J- Joel was the hitman and Dana was the, um, the contract put the contract out for the hit. But as the months went by, all leads drying up, Sousa got desperate and he decided it's time to do something weird and not normal. And they decided that they would go to uh, drug investigators and, um, you know, who use a lot of wiring of houses and stuff like that. And they wondered what could they do to uh, get surveillance of Dana and Joel simultaneously. And one of the things they noticed is that Joel and Dana were talking by payphone a lot and that they had a pager that they each used and they would let each other know when they needed a phone call and which phone booth it was going to be at. 
So what they did was they learned how to wire up a dummy pager. And um, they figured out which payphones were going to be used and at what time. And there would be these different uh, people, detectives, on the adjacent payphone listening in on each, and they had it going on on each payphone, listening in on one side of the conversation for Dana and the other side for Joel. So in other words, not a wiretap because they didn't have a warrant to to do a wiretap, but they did get this pager thing. That's right. The dummy pager. I just think that is so incredibly brilliant and innovative. It is. I totally agree with you. And I just, I really want to emphasize for the variety of ages I'm sure that we have listening you know, pay phones are the phones you used to see on the side of the road. You may not have any idea what I'm saying when I say that, but there were phones because we didn't have cell phones. So you'd have phones sporadically outside of the 7-Eleven, um, at a bus stop, at, you know, the side of the road. Like there would just be pay phones. And they typically would be in a bank of two to four phones side by side. And so we didn't have a, a lot of the vestibules over here like they did on the East Coast, like Superman used to change when he would go into a phone booth. But we had just banks, these standing phones. And the pagers were these little teeny things that you could call a number to. It would beep the number or whatever series of numbers you had sent to that pager. And whoever owned the pager would get beeped. And they could look down and see a phone number that wants them to call them back. They could go find a payphone and call it. So this kind of police work is 100% 20th century police work. This is all we could do. This is it. And they, I just, I am so like, I feel like these detectives are rock stars. I feel like this is a rock star story, a rock star case. Just yeah. great work all around. I think it was. It really creative. is, Caroline. And it's cool. I, I, this is where I'm really going to recommend to people. Please read, um, catch me if you can. I, it's a fantastic book. And uh, it goes into a lot more detail than we're able to cover in our podcast. But basically, um, you know, at one point, Dana and Joel kind of knew something's going on, man. You know, I think we're being tapped or something's going on or we're being followed. Yeah. And so they stopped having conversations together. And uh, Susa and Curtis didn't like that. They were getting a lot of the goods on these two. They were going to have enough soon for a prosecuting attorney to press charges and they'll be able to arrest and so forth. This was taking a long time. I mean, you know, this is like, you know, spilling over into maybe two years, one year and a half years. Mm-hmm. It, a lot of months are going by here when they're gathering all the circumstantial evidence. And um, so they make up another new ploy. They go, um, they... Let's see. They decided to stir things up. They went to go see Dana, who was in the dorms at school, and they waited until it was just Dana, or at least they weren't going to be running into Radisvich. And um, that Susan knocked on Dana's door and told him that they wanted him to know that his friend, Joel Radisvich, was the main suspect in killing Dana's family. Dana's face. Remember that mask? It turned transparent mm-hmm. right before their very eyes. And after the detectives left Dana's dorm room, I want to know how did they keep from laughing? Uh, Dana and Joel Radisvich turned their pager on again, and they started communicating once more. 
And it just kept piling up. This is some of the stuff that they learned that Dana and Joel thought Susan Curtis were dumb as rocks and they would never get any evidence on them. Dana and Joel's nickname for Susan Curtis was Mutt and Jeff. They also found out that when Joel had programmed his pager, the number he chose corresponded with the letters K-I-L-L-A-J-R, as in Killa Joel Radisvich, as in just call Killa Radisvich if you need a hit. Oh, my god! I mean, I know. I mean, at least Joel, he's an entrepreneur. He's thinking, you know, I can, I'm going to copyright Killa Joel Radisvich. An account had been set up by his parents for his maternal grandmother, his Dana's maternal grandmother. So this is Glee's mama. She was in her 80s. She was in a residential care. And um, it had been set up by Dale for her own personal use. And Dana had taken that money. Well, that's and right. spend it Ugh. in addition to the fund set up for Tiffany. And he also rated her certificates of, po- of deposit for $300,000. I think I mentioned that. But Dana was awarded $300,000 from life insurance. I probably mentioned that already, too. But just, you know, I can't get over it. Dana and Joel had been taking expensive helicopter trips, helicopter lessons, rather, trips to Europe. They bought cars for themselves. Drum roll, they bought a car for Dana's girlfriend, Monica Zent. So what do I think now about Monica Zent? You know, I have some sound effects. Here's the one I'm going to play for that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Monica, you're not innocent. I mean, I... Anyway, hey, Dana I mean, a was lie, paying. F- a lie by omission is still a lie. Feigning ignorance is still actively, you know, willful stupidity. I mean, you're just, <laughs> you can't pretend. You're interfering with an investigation. That's, I mean, you're participating even through complicity or whatever the word is. You know, you're you're not innocent Complicit. when you know what's See. happening and you just do nothing. That, that's not an option either. I agree. Dana was paying Monica's tuition to law school. Holy I mean, this is circumstantial evidence that can't maybe come back to bite her, but I'm going to bite you. Well, yeah, I'm going to bite you. I wonder where my money comes from. I mean, come on. Didn't her dad know, I know. where the money was coming from? Because weren't the parents? Okay. Here? And so anyway, in this cat and mouse over the phone, Joel and Dana said things that implicated each man's culpability in the murders. Uh, but the PA f- thought you don't have enough. For the conviction, you need the weapon. Mm. You need the weapon. Yeah. So they went in search of the weapon. But they kept on interviewing, uh, not interviewing, uh, they kept on surveillance with their phone stuff to figure out what was going on. And um, they also, uh, a funny thing happened, they also got a letter from Austin Ewell, who was Dale's father who said that Dana wanted to come and see him, and he thought Dana had maybe killed his son, and he did not want uh, Dana to come and see him because he thought maybe Dana would come and kill him. Yeah. And why? Because Dana had been calling him saying, you need to quit talking to the police. You need to stop 
saying that, you know, uh, that the police need to look at the family because that is exactly what Dale's father was doing. Yeah. Because remember the brothers? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. The, uh, the detectives even at one point flew to Ohio to Dale Yule's family home. There they found out that he also had a sister. Oh. Dale wow. had a sister. They went and talked to her. And this is really interesting how these fi- family dynamics go. The sister told the detectives that, "Hey, you need to be looking you need to be looking at Dan, Ben and Richard." because if they get Dana out of the way, I mean, if they, if they, if they can uh, pin it on Dana, that Dana killed the father, Dale, then they'll inherit as the next line of family members to inherit the fortune. That's interesting. So, I mean, you know, I'm thinking, oh, Maybe that family of origin is not, you know, the Norman Rockwell picture that I thought it was. Right. right. Or maybe this aunt has a little bit of the Dana tendencies in her too. Money, money, money. Maybe to Oh, Caroline, you're so smart. (laughs) You're so smart. Yeah. Okay. We're going to knock out all of them. (laughs) Like Dana's a, Dana's a Not me. Dana doesn't even understand how this game works. (laughs) That's what she's thinking. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. Yeah, and her name was Betty. But it is odd. Her to name me is Betty. Betty would pop off and have this. It's a it's a legitimate take to have, and let's run it down. But it sounds a little bit like uh, she's not paying attention to the other uh, pieces. Of no, money. and she also told her father, "You need to quit, you know, talking to the police about Dana because you know how do I know you're not responsible?" Yeah, I'd love to see the pen pal letters between uh, Dana and Betty because yeah, I have a feeling they share a lot more genetic material yeah, than maybe yeah. people realize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Betty described her brothers as money grubbing. Okay. Well, yeah, you know, the depression will do that to you. For sure. Yeah. Plus, what anyway, does that mean? They're not extravagantly spending, which is what I think money grubbing maybe is. Maybe frugal is a better word. Right. Miserly maybe is more her. And, you know, they they did get a bead on that uh, gun. And what happened was... They had been listening to these phone conversations in the way that they were doing their surveillance on the payphones by following the pagers. And they found out uh, that there was a character named Jack Ponce who had sold a gun to Radisfitch's brother. And uh, they found out what kind of gun it was. And they also got the book that how to make a silencer book that Radisfitch had ordered. And in that book, it gave step-by-step instructions on how to make a silencer. And so they contacted the manufacturer of this gun that Ponce had sold to Joel Radisfitch's brother. And they reconstructed that model of gun or got a hold of a model that was exactly like it and they reconstructed the silencer by following the steps in the book that Joel Radisfitch had purchased that everybody on campus knew about yeah and they fired it 
into, or they gave it to the ballistics team and they fired it into the big water barrel or whatever they do to get the bullets. And it matched the bullets that were taken out of the bodies of Tiffany and Glee and Dale. That's just the police work. This case is such an exemplar for how great police can get, you know, in their yes. in their pursuit yes. of truth and justice. Because that's absolutely amazing. absolutely even before DNA was really used yeah. a lot, even before uh social media, even before we're talking about gumshoe work. We're talking about s- surveillance for over a year or more, two years. Yeah. And uh, also what they did was they visited Jack Ponce. They told him, you're going to be an accessory to murder unless you turn, we'll give you immunity, yeah. and you tell the story of how this gun got into the hands of Joel Radisfitch. Yes. And he agreed to do it. So he made a deal. Thank goodness. I, I do feel yeah. like the police, even though we all know now what happened and we can, with the recreation of the silencers, it's not enough. You know, I mean, you really, it's, the threshold is beyond a reasonable doubt. It is reasonable to assume that that isn't the same weapon. It could be circumstantial. It made the same marks. I mean, that's annoying, but it's the truth. And so I think that bar of justice is just high enough, but bravo to these police. Bravo. For Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I'm going to do my sound effects again because I have them on my board and I don't usually use them except for the intro. But I got to say that the DA finally filed three first degree murder charges against Dana Yule, Joel Radisfitch, and Jack Ponce. But we know that Jack Ponce then made a deal. So now we're going to go to trial. For Dana Ewell and Joel Radisfitch, three counts each of first degree <laughs> murder. That's right. Yeah, I probably didn't do the drums right. I think it should have been first degree murder. Yes, okay. <laughs> so this will be the last time that I'm going to mess around with my sound effects. I, thought, I promise. I thought you were going to do a well, crowd roar. <gasps> uh, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Um, so charges were filed and in early 1995, three long years of scratching around searches, searching for justice. Uh, here comes the, uh, trial. So Mud and Jeff, as Dana had contemptuously named Susan Curtis, had delivered on their promise to these victims. And the DA was ready to tell it to Lady Justice and a jury. Now, it was really weird because Dana claimed he just didn't do it. And he had a lawyer. And Radisfitch's lawyer claimed, well, he did it, but there was a reason that he did it. And so it's going to be more about mitigation for him, but but he... he uh, it, proving that Dana didn't do it for Dana because Dana didn't want to admit to anything. I have no cracks, yeah, remember? Right. I have no cracks. Perfect. No cracks. That was my crackless. Anyway, so they were tried together, and Dana had a flamboyant attorney 
who craved the spotlight by the name of Ernest Kenny. He was part of OJ's dream team, so, you know, it can't be too bad. He offered his services pro bono to Dana, um, knowing probably that he's going to get a payout only if he can find him innocent. Dana also had a public defender from Fresno County, as did Joel. So, uh, because Dana was really, he'd spent all of the money that was available to him, Mm -hmm. him and and Joel. Mm -hmm. So he was entitled to uh, a a public defender, but he also had a pro bono attorney who was just doing it because he was, loved the spotlight and I don't know. Anyway. There was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of legal haggering between the prosecution and the defense. And as I said, um, Dana's attorney were going for complete innocent. And um, Radisvich's attorney felt that the evidence against Radisvich was insurmountable. What's up? 